I've entitled this message today, The Arrest of the I Am. So over these next weeks, we're going to be looking at this part of Scripture under the title, The Road to Calvary, looking at these final hours of Jesus' life and then looking at his resurrection. And as we look at his arrest here this morning, the key verses are those verses 4 to 6, which are going to come up on the screen again. And let me read them again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. There's actually no he in the original. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, in the original Greek, that wee phrase, I am, ego, I me, it's just, it's not I am he, it's just I am, which is very, very significant. And it's emphasized in the Greek language. It's I am. It's, there's a strong emphasis in the way this is worded. And a number of things we're going to think about these words of Jesus, I am, at this point. The first of all, they are words of majesty. Now, that phrase, I am, is very common in John's gospel. It is used in Jesus' seven great I am sayings, including, I am the light of the world, I'm the bread of life, I'm the resurrection life, I am the door, I'm the vine, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and so forth. But the phrase, I am, has even greater significance back in the Old Testament, where it originated. And there it first was used when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. There, when Moses asked God what was his name, the answer that came back was, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. I am is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And sometimes translated, if you look at the Old Testament, the word Lord with the the letters O-R-D in small capitals. That's this, always this word, Yahweh, I am. Sometimes it's translated as Jehovah, but it's not a really accurate translation. It's the word Yahweh, I am. And I am is God's personal name. Before that, when he spoke to Moses, he's just known as God, which could be a word that's used also of false gods, and even a word that was used of angels. But I am is this personal name, and by using that term, I am, it's as if God is saying, I am who I am. There's none like me. I have no equals. I have no competitors. There's no one who can stand against me. I am who I will be. It can also be translated that. I am the God who can do as I please. I'm the sovereign God that no one can stand against. So, I am is the name that revealed God's glory, God's majesty, and God's sovereign control. And here, Jesus, by using that phrase, I am, he is declaring that he is the God of glory. He is this God of majesty. He is this God of sovereign control. Jesus is saying that he is the God who made this world. He is the God who met with Moses at the burning bush. He is the God who told Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. He is the God who opened up the Red Sea. 
He is the God who met with Isaiah in the temple high and exalted. He is this great God of history. Now, the crowd who were there to arrest Jesus, and some scholars estimate that that crowd was between two to three hundred, given the word that was used for crowd. That great crowd, them drawing back and even falling to the ground here, when Jesus uttered that phrase, I am, was them in some way realizing and acknowledging the glory, the majesty of the one who they had come to arrest. This is fascinating. This is a wee part of Scripture we could miss so easily, but it's so wonderful. They come to arrest him. Who are you looking for, Jesus says? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And they fall back. They fall away from him. Something of his majesty, his glory, is revealed in those words. And the big challenge for us is, have we come to acknowledge the glory and the majesty of this Jesus. If you're not a Christian, if you've never come to embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord, one of the main reasons you haven't done that is you haven't come to see fully the glory and the majesty of this Jesus, the I Am. And if you are a Christian, but you're seeking to live a buffet type of Christianity where you come to God and say, okay, I'll take that, I'll, I'll take that, but I'll leave that. I'll do this when it suits me, but I'll not do that. If that's your attitude to Christianity, that a Christianity that you'll be a part of and you're part of the church when it suits you, you have no fear of God. You have no fear of the great I am. You haven't come to see the majesty and the glory of Jesus. Could you imagine Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and exalted wanting to bargain with him? Moses tried that at the burning bush, and God got angry with him because this is not the God you can bargain with. Moses had to come and accept that this is a God you have to bow before totally. Jesus, the I am, words of majesty. And then secondly, these are also, at the same time, amazingly, words of humility. We have seen something of the glory and majesty of Jesus in the words, I am, but there is humility. When Jesus asked the crowd who they were seeking for, the answer was Jesus of Nazareth. And his I am was him acknowledging that he is this Jesus of Nazareth. And this was Jesus humbly acknowledging his humanity. Because that term, Jesus of Nazareth, it wasn't just they were stating that he was Jesus who came from the town of Nazareth, his hometown. It was a derogatory expression. Nazareth was a place of poor reputation. When Philip, who would follow Jesus, when he first met Jesus and then went and informed Nathanael that he had found the Messiah and that he was from Nazareth, do you remember what Nathanael's response was? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was known as a place of, of rascals for deceivers, for thieves. And it wasn't just the city of Nazareth, but that whole region of Galilee that was disregarded in this way. Once when Nicodemus spoke up for Jesus in John 7, 
the response from the religious leaders to him was, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus, he can't be from Galilee because he can't be the Messiah because no prophet comes from that part of the world. That's the part of the world that's so bad, so wicked. Nothing good comes from there. They were actually wrong because Jonah, the prophet, came from Galilee. But Nazareth and Galilee, they were bywords for second-class Jews. You've got to remember the geography of Israel. You had Jerusalem, the area of Judea in the south. And then north of it, you had Samaria, those half-Jews who were totally despised. And then above Samaria was Galilee, greatly influenced by Greek culture. The primary language was Greek. And so to those in Judea, Galilee, they're not real Jews. They're second-class Jews at the very best. And Jesus came not only from Galilee, he came from this wicked, deceitful place called Nazareth. It's a wee bit like if you constantly refer to me as Moody from South Armagh, I wouldn't be taking that particularly in a complimentary sense, uh, using that way. It's the same thought here. But when Jesus responds to, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth with I am, he is identifying himself with that lowly place, Nazareth. He is identifying himself with the lowest of humanity. Jesus, the great I am, Jesus, the majestic God. But as Paul says, writing to the Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The great I am, the God of glory and majesty, he humbles himself to become a servant, to become a lowly man, to be brought up in that wicked place called Nazareth. He has come so low to identify with the lowliest and the most sinful of society. And do you realize that that's you and me? Do you accept that we are the lowly ones? There's no point pointing the fingers at others out there, but we, if we truly know our hearts and minds, we are the lowest of the low. We are lowly sinners. And it is an amazing miracle of grace that Jesus would come down to identify as a human being with sinners like us. Words of humility. Words of majesty, words of humility, and thirdly, words of protection. With this great crowd of armed men coming towards Jesus and his disciples in the darkness, there was real danger that it could get out of control. Remember, I said there's likely two to three hundred people here. And not just Jesus, but his disciples could have been injured and harmed if things totally got out of control. And Jesus, in taking the initiative and stepping out and by asking who they're looking for, and then responding, I am, when they say Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus was deliberately drawing 
the attention of the crowd away from His disciples and causing them to focus on Him. Look at verses 7 to 9, what it says, So He asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that He had spoken, Of those whom you have given Me, I have lost one of them. And that phrase, of those you have given me, I have lost none of them, where does that come from? Well, if you go back into John chapter 17, Jesus' great prayer, which we're going to look at on Wednesday night, in verse 12, this is what Jesus prayed. While I was with them, that's the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that's Judas that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, Jesus, as He faced His arrest, His torture, His horrendous death on the cross, what was His great concern here for? It was for His disciples, that they would be protected. So, by saying, I am, those are words of protection, He's drawing the focus on Himself. All that Jesus was doing was out of love and sacrifice to rescue others. That's what Jesus is all about. I love that wee incident in the the Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Ring. There's a bit towards the end of that film where the the orcs or those very evil creatures had come to, to get Frodo. And Frodo is hiding behind a tree and he's going to run away. And two of his friends, uh, they had searched his out, Merrick, and I can't remember the others because it might go on my head. They then says, they knew what he's doing, so they decide that they would draw the attention of these creatures onto them. And so they jump from behind the tree, they shout and yell, and they're really delighted. It's working, it's working, because all these creatures are coming in, they realize they're about to be caught, and that they have a scarper right quickly. But what are they doing? They're taking the attention away from their friend, taking it on themselves so their friend could go free. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. That's why Jesus has come. He's come to endure the wrath, the punishment of God on the cross of Calvary. He's come to endure that so that sinners like you and me could be rescued. It's the only way that we could be rescued. The great I am, He could have chosen to look after Himself but rather his concern was for his people. What a marvelous thought this is if you're a Christian. The great I am, the God who met with Moses, the God who sent the ten plagues, the God who parted the Red Sea, he is the God, Christian, who is your protector. He is your guard. He is your shield. He is the God who has no equals. He is there protecting you providing for you, and He will carry you through the most difficult of days. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus, who we worship today, yes, He's a man who can sympathize with us, but He's much more than that. He is God Almighty, the strength, the power to protect us and to carry us through. This is the wonderful hope for the Christian, but What about if you're here today and you're not a Christian? What about if you're here today 
and you're a good religious person, but you're not saved, you're not born again. Is this great I am, this Jesus on your side? Well, he wants to care for you. He wants to protect you. But as Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said as a mother hen would gather her chicks, how he would long to gather those people, that's what he's saying about you. He wants you to be a person under his care, under his protection for now and for eternity. But you're still resisting him. And so he's not your friend and protector at this point. He is your enemy and your judge. But it doesn't have to be. Even now, even sitting in your pew, sitting in the hall, sitting in your car, sitting at home, listening to this, you can come to this Jesus in faith and repentance. Come to this great I am and say, I'll embrace you as my Savior, my Lord, my protector. Dear non-Christian friends here today, how can you face life? How can you face death without knowing Jesus as your Savior and protector? Turn to Him. Find the hope that He alone can bring. So words of majesty, words of humility, words of protection, And finally, we have words of submission. Peter draws his sword to cut off the ear of Malchus, who was a servant of the high priest, in verse 10. And Jesus' response shows how his priority was very different to Peter. And it says there in verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, you've got it wrong, as he often did. You're fighting the battle the wrong way. That phrase about the cup there, it should immediately take our minds back to Jesus' time of prayer in Gethsemane. In Matthew, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's at the beginning of his prayer time. He's saying, Father, take this cup away from me. If there's another way, let it be done. If I don't have to drink this cup to save my people, let me not drink the cup. But if you go on in Matthew's gospel, this is what we then read later on. Jesus in his praying, he moved on to pray, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now he has accepted that he has to take the cup. And he's now praying for grace to drink that cup of God's wrath at Calvary down to the very last drop. And in Jesus' words there, there's an acceptance of the Father's will. There's an acceptance of the Father's ways. Peter was seeking to advance the kingdom of God by physical force. Jesus is seeking to advance the kingdom of God through sacrifice and his death on the cross. And in a sense, those two roads are always there for believers and for the church to take. Will we take the path of force to advance the kingdom based on human effort, based on what we do? Or will we take the path of grace, 
based on Jesus, on His death, on His sacrifice on the cross, as the way that the kingdom is advanced. There's always the temptation of the church to seek to do the right thing, but to do the right thing the wrong way. Paul says this writing to the Corinthians, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In his day, preaching the message of Jesus wasn't popular. The Jews, they wanted signs. They wanted miracles to take place. That's what they said. Give us miracles, and we'll trust in your Jesus. The Greeks, they said, give us wisdom. Give us your very fine intellect. Give us very clever talk. What's Paul's response to those who wanted miracles, to those who wanted the philosophy of the Greeks? His response was, we preach the simple message of Christ crucified. And look what he goes on and says there, a stumbling block to Jews. They don't like it. Folly to the Gentiles. Let's see it as foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, as he preached that simple message of Christ crucified, the power of Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God entered people's hearts and lives and transformed them by saving grace. You see, there's always a temptation for us as a church to change what we do in our core work. Now, we've been speaking in previous weeks about the need for change, and there are ways that we do change, but there are certain things that we never change. And the primary way that we see the gospel advance, the primary way that we see people won for salvation, it doesn't change. It's by preaching the Word of God. It's preaching the message of Christ crucified. It's almost 2,000 years since Paul said those words. But dear Christian, for those of you who are here at school, primary school or secondary school, what do your friends need? They need to hear about Christ crucified. Young people at university, young people just into employment, what do those people around you need to hear? Christ crucified. For the rest of us in our workplace, in our families, in our social gatherings, what do those people around us need to hear? Christ crucified. And if they will not come in here to hear it, we have to go out there and share it. These are the words of submission. Jesus is going to advance the kingdom, not with a sword. Jesus was going to advance the kingdom by dying on the cross of Calvary. And as we share the message of who Jesus is, why He died, and what He achieved through His death, the kingdom advances today. And we need to be those who, who are like Jesus, who Jesus trusted fully in His Father. That's why He submitted to His Father. That is why He drank the cup of suffering, the cup of wrath. He trusted His Father fully. And we will follow the ways of God. We will follow the methods of God when we trust God and trust this Jesus. 
And as we share this message of Christ, and as we pray for this message as it's shared, Christ breaks into the hearts of sinners. That's what we want to happen to our anchor boys, our explorers, right up to those in our company sections. That's what we want to happen to our children in our Sunday school, our Bible class, or youth fellowship. That's what we want to happen in all of our organizations among adults. We want the power of Christ, the power of salvation, the power of the cross to transform them. And so as Jesus submitted to drink that cup, that their response and our response, the same that we were singing in that psalm earlier, that we will take the cup. It's not for us a cup of wrath, because Jesus has taken the wrath out of it. For, up, for us is a cup of salvation as we embrace Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord. I trust you've done that. If you've not done it, today is the day to bow to this great I am. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, it would have been lovely to be able to see that sight as he uttered those words, I am. And those soldiers and all others who were gathered there just stepped back and fell to the ground because something of his majesty came through in those words. And Father, we pray as a church, as we share the message of Jesus Father, we pray that indeed something of the majesty of Christ would come through the words of Scripture as we share it. So people will bow before him, bow before him in faith and surrender, embracing him as Savior and Lord. For such grace we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.